Welcome to Love and Compassion, the podcast where we explore different topics that may challenge our current belief systems and the fears that they generate. Our hope is that through dialogue, you, the listener, will be inspired and motivated in new ways on your own journey to living a more loving and compassionate life. Please welcome your host, Giselle Tarab. My guest today is founder of Erica's Fitness Movement, host of Road to Recovery on Rogers TV, and author of the book, I Am My Own Superhero. Join me in welcoming Erica Wright. Welcome, Erica. Thank you, Giselle. It's so great to be here. Oh, thank you for being here. I want to start a little bit of our conversation getting information about what your childhood was like. I know that a lot of your book talks about the childhood adversity you faced and how you're um, stepping up into your power help you kind of overcome it. So I wonder if you could t- tell us a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was born and raised in Woodstock, Ontario in Canada. And I had a pretty, I would say like average family growing up. I was the oldest of two younger brothers and um, my dad worked full time. My mom uh, worked part time while raising us kids. And and really like how I like to sum it up is back then, um, I'm going to introduce the concept of conscious thinking and conscious living. And um, how I like to describe it is myself and my family and even other families, I just noticed uh, weren't fully living a conscious life. So they weren't fully aware of their thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. And in our family, there was a lot of addictions um, and domestic abuse growing up. So witnessing like alcoholism was was big in our family. It's big in um, my extended family, like going back generations. And there was some anxiety and depression growing up too. Um, I experienced a lot of those emotions back then. Wasn't really sure what it was, but in elementary school, I started experiencing anxiety and a little bit of depression. Again, I didn't really know what that was back then, but that's kind of what I was born into at that young age. Fast forward through elementary school grades, you know, six, seven, eight, and and going through that transition into high school was extremely challenging for me. And because my parents were struggling with their own lives, I mean, it's just really, it was really hard for them to help me. I'm 30 years old now, but at the time then, people weren't talking about mental health as much. Uh, The schools, I feel like, had a hard time supporting me too. And uh, I just think it was lack of uh, knowledge, really. At the core, I do believe that most people are doing the best that they could to help facilitate some of the challenges I was going through. So yeah, at a very young age, uh, there were some traumas for sure that happened in my life, just with the parents' divorce, court processes were brought in, you know, and the feeling, the tug and war of feeling like you have to pick between parents is, it was brutal to say the least. Mm -hmm. And those emotions because I didn't really have the information on how to release them. Later in life, I went through therapy and found fitness as a form of therapy as well, but I went for actual counseling therapy. Um, I wasn't really sure how to release the traumas. And one thing I've learned is when you don't talk about things, the feelings that you feel just grow inside you and fester. And then if they don't come out in a healthy way, they come out in an unhealthy way. That's really what happened with me, you know, at grades in grade six, seven, eight, or more, it was actually more seven and eight. I began taking substances. So I was taking like using marijuana, um, experimented with exity. I can't know if I said it right, the E drug um, in grade eight. 
ecstasy. Thank you, ecstasy. (laughs) That's okay. And then there was a lot of bullying going on. So just kids not being very nice to each other. And then that, that snowball kept growing and growing and growing until grade nine and 10 were the peak, was the peak, uh, challenging times for me. Um, you know, just going into a new school, my parents finally divorced around that time. There was a separation between me and my younger brothers. So I was living with my dad. My brothers were living with my mom, uh, not a lot of communication going on. And I, I wasn't really getting the support and help that I needed grade nine and 10 were brutal. It just, I just got mixed in the wrong crowd and I began, you know, angrily dealing with my emotions. And again, very unconscious thinking. If I like think back into my behavior, obviously there's some level of awareness, but I wasn't aware of why I was behaving the way that I was, you know, like I was angry. I was upset. I was looking for love in places that wasn't really giving me love back, but I was getting some type of need out of it filled. And, you know, if I look back now, I just, I know 100% I was that person that could have been saved. I know that if we had enough information and resources, if there was just more um, action, like more opportunities, you know, if there are people reaching out to me to try to connect, I am super confident that I would have like skipped a, skipped a bunch of that like trauma. Um, and that, that's why I really am so passionate to do what I do today is because I do, I do want to help youth and, and families better understand their youth, better understand themselves. Hopefully schools can help better understand everybody as a whole. And we can really work together to help people have a successful onboarding and life. You know, mm-hmm. I'm really passionate about it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How is it that you ended up in the child welfare system? Basically, grade nines and 10 were the darkest stages. So when I say that is I was skipping school and doing substances, smoking weed, trying ecstasy, uh, mushrooms, all that uh, terrible stuff, terrible for your body. It just makes you feel even worse. And I was getting into some crime, you know, kids and I, we stole a couple cars, broke into people's homes. You know, it's every time you would think by now, I've been sharing my story for like 10 years. You would think by now, when I talk about these things, it would be super easy. It's not. (laughs) I still can't believe Mm -hmm. that I like that I did these things, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But I just think it shows the level of what happens when someone goes through trauma, because I was in such survival mode. And before I went into care, I even got kicked further down the path. I went to um, youth justice before I went into care. I was 14 or 15. And I went to open custody. Open custody, for people who don't know, is it's kind of like a group home. Like there's a bunch of kids in there under a certain age. It's not quite jail yet. You're still an adolescent. And you can really walk off the property at any time. I mean, of course, if you do that, you're going to have a warrant out for your arrest. Like there's consequences because you're there for a reason. Like obviously society, people know there's some stuff going on that we need to correct. I got in trouble again there and got sent to secure, secure custody. And those experiences were really, really rough. Uh, when I, when I say that, I just feel like mm-hmm. when I was in so much pain in, in hurt, you know, I was sent into a vi- in, into an environment that obviously wasn't very nice. Um, it was very dark, very gloomy, very isolated, 
And the the culture when I went there didn't feel very open and very in, inviting. So those experiences just piled on for me. And I felt like I was going down this path deeper and darker. And, you know, at that point, it can get very tough because you get these labels. My family, my a lot of my lost a lot of my my good girlfriends, you know, which really sucked. And I totally get it. But I lost a lot. And when people hear what you're going through, unfortunately, the stigma then for a lot of people was once an addict, always an addict. I don't believe that. I believe that people can completely transform and change their life around and heal physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. But it was uh, a blessing in disguise that I went through these dark parts because it was when I was in custody that I had the opportunity to go to a group home. And I'll never forget the day because it completely changed my life. And it was like one of those decisions, Giselle, that like, you just know it's a big decision. I could feel it in my gut. You know, I had a lot of anxiety. I had a lot of fear. Like I knew this decision was going to change my life. And I had the choice to either go back to my hometown and go back to my previous living situation, or I could go step into a group home. I was a little too old to go through the traditional Children's Aid Society channels. Since then, that has changed. But because I was almost 16, um, that was my path. And I went to go live in a home with 12 girls. And that wasn't easy. What was really special for me was I needed tough love. I needed routine and structure. I needed new role models, to be quite honest, to see how other people lived and how they interacted with people. And those influences really began to make me question, okay, well, why am I here? How did I get here? Let's be honest. Let's look at my past behaviors. I'm obviously very angry and acting out, but I'm only hurting myself. And a lot of the times, the the things that have happened to me have been because of other people's pains and traumas. And the truth is I had allowed some of those things to impact me in some aspects I was learning. It was kind of like I was born into this life of unconscious thinking. It was with that painful situation that I was able to wake up. So uh, in youth justice, I was able, I had the opportunity to go to a group home and I'm a huge advocate for them, even though that's not something we're really focused on. I think that's a big mistake. I think that there needs to be some solutions. I understand the current situation may not be ideal, but I think we can be creative and create more uh, community environments that can really help people get the skills they need. At the group home gave me structure, routine, waking up at the same time every day, learning how to make breakfast and meals. There were consequences if I didn't follow through. I had to go to school. You know, I had chores. Um, there was extracurricular funding. So I was able to uh, take up sports and uh, I had a, a fitness membership at the YMCA and I later found a huge passion for fitness and that it serves me well today. Um, and there was just good staff. I'm very lucky that I met some incredible staff and that I still have relationships with them today. So Giselle, it's been like a really cool journey to say the least. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and thank you for sharing that because I think there's this belief that group homes are all bad and that uh, they should be eradicated, but it has helped some youth that I know. I think that we tend to kind of uh, make these decisions uh, like it should be an all or nothing. Mm -hmm. I think we should provide different options for youth. I wanted to go back to your point of unconscious living. 
Yeah. Like I said, I think there, especially in today's world where we're kind of distractible and always on our phones, a lot of us are doing kind of this unconscious living. And at times living with emotions and feelings and trauma that um, we haven't really addressed. And so one of the things I noticed in your book was that you said that you felt that your parents couldn't love you because they couldn't love themselves. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about in the context of that unconscious um, feeling that you were talking about or that unconscious living you were talking about and how self-love kind of influences that. Yeah, so I truly believe that every human being here on this planet is born to grow and transform and develop. And I always like to like quickly like paint it as like when we're a a baby and we learn how to walk, um, sometimes we fall down, right? We we crawl first, we learn how to walk and there's a process in that. And and we have physical growing pains, right? I believe that to be the same for us emotionally and spiritually and mentally. And I believe throughout our lifespan, our life journey, we are meant to grow in all those aspects and even financially for that matter as well. So I believe it's all part of the human experience. I feel like that was the work that was happening and it needed to happen too when I was younger. And as I started doing my own healing work, when I went to the group home, I started to understand a little bit more about my parents. And I realized that, you know what, like I started asking more questions about their upbringing and what type of experience they had with self-love. You know, there weren't really many examples to draw upon. So when I took a step back and started realizing, oh, wow, like my parents maybe just haven't had like really defined good examples of love, respectful, healthy love, then how is it humanly possible for them to teach that to me? How can they give something that they don't have? Right. In my journey, it started to help the forgiveness process and just really looking at it objectively, like that can be hard, but that helped me and still helps me in certain moments today, dealing with the past and things like that. So to be conscious, I just, I think some people are born more conscious than others. This is just my personal opinion. Sometimes the unconsciousness is pain or trauma or sadness or anger that we are holding on to that we haven't learned how to release naturally. And I believe through my own life experience um, and doing work with experts in like in therapy, for example, and fitness actually, is we're able to release these hard stuck emotions within us um, in a healthy way. And it, that, that energy that we carry can truly leave our body and we can let that go. And that is something that is brave and courageous and is not always easy. For me anyways, I had to really look hard in the mirror and it felt like I was swallowing a big pill and it's, it's great to realize, but it was also hard for me to realize at the same time that I was creating my reality. That's what kind of led me to realizing, okay, wow, I have this power inside me. I'm looking everywhere else for people to save me or to show up for me when that is an extension of me. And at the end of the day, that is a, that's a sign or a mirror or a message or whatever you want to call it. That is 
for me to do. That's my job. My job is to show up for Erica. My job is to save myself and use my voice and reach out and ask for help. One of my favorite taglines in my fitness programs is when in doubt, work out and ask for help. (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for sharing the thought about um, creating our own realities. So many of us just want to kind of, we think that we're creating our realities and and putting out there and thinking that maybe positive affirmations, you know, are going to help us or whatever. But what we don't realize is a lot of the time we're creating our reality from our unconscious thoughts. Yeah, it's our perception. Right. If you think that you, you know, you want a relationship, but if their sponsoring thought is I'm unlovable, you're not going to attract that relationship that you're looking for. That's right. I wanted to ask if that was the reason why you wrote your book. And if you could talk a little bit about it, it's actually, it's such a brilliant book. I love it. Thank you so much. I wrote it as a form of self-healing and I just had this burning desire in my belly. When you're somebody who goes through care and you uh, go through this, some of the systems, the feeling you often get is pity. And I couldn't stand that feeling because it just prevents people from growing. I feel like it keeps them stuck. Nobody should be ashamed or embarrassed of traumas that have occurred to them. Nobody should have to carry that anymore. That feeling motivated me to write a book. I had so much inside of what I experienced and I wanted to get out and I wanted to get out in a way that was in something someone could hold you know, it, you can bring it with you. Like you can look at it any time of day. It's a resource. It's a tool. What I didn't realize in the beginning, but I got to experience, it was very healing for me as well. And it was healing for my parents too, because they read certain parts in the book uh, I wrote about my past and that include my parents. And I asked them to read it and open up a dialogue, excuse me, about the past that was a cool experience that came out of it that I didn't really intend to, but happened naturally. The book is a workbook, which I thought was really important because there's a lot of theories out there. And like you said, Giselle, one size doesn't fit all. And I'm a really big advocate for personalized care. It's what I do in my personal training and fitness. Um, And I'm all about empowerment and how can we work together? Because when people are going through their trauma, it's very important that they realize their own power in healing and that they are going to have a lot of the solutions inside them. And so I thought with this workbook, I can empower people to look at themselves holistically, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, then see what resonates with them. And so truly they can really open the book and kind of start anywhere. I mean, the beginning is about my background in, uh, you know, my child experiences moving through some of the systems, but most of the part is a workbook and it, it has a fun superhero theme. Which is great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And um, it talks a little bit about the darker sides, um, the villain as well. So I tie in the, the superhero and the villain themes. Yeah, and it's a perfect theme considering how popular all those uh, superhero movies are. And I think one of the the best things about the book is that really it's about awakening our own superhero and understanding that the power was always within, which is why I appreciated your comment on pity. I don't think people understand how disempowering pity is and how pitying Mm -hmm. kids that come into care or kids that are uh, marginalized or experience trauma is so disempowering because at the end of the day, a lot of the kids who are in care are very resilient individuals who have 
managed to use survival strategies in order for them to be able to live in really difficult environments. I agree. Thank you. Um, so I know in some of your experiences, you talked about some of the adversities that you had at school. At one point, you talked about how you had bullied people. And in your book, you mentioned how the school ground was full of insecure kids trying to find ways to make themselves feel good. I was just wondering if you could share a little bit more about your experiences with bullying. You know, it, for me, it's it's always hard. It never gets super easy to share these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a relationship with Faith. Um, I just feel called to share these things and be completely honest because I think we all can relate. Everyone can think of one time that they maybe weren't so nice to somebody before or they judged somebody. When I was a child in elementary school, you know, I was easily influenced and I've reflected a lot on this and obviously worked with a therapist. And I, I think a lot of it is just lacking confidence I was easily influenced and I didn't really know how to say no. I was so afraid to hurt people's feelings. I would not take care of myself because I'd rather take care of somebody else. So interesting uh, revelations, Um, you know, and, and as I say this now, I'm really focusing on coming from a place of compassion and understanding and no judgment there. And because of those things, I was easily involved with bullying and girls were um, you know, tearing each other down. And I mean, some of the guys were too, but I just remember the girl experience and it was terrible. And I, reflecting back, I believe in terms of the school experience, that was the catalyst that led me down the road of getting mixed in with other hurt children and other children who were being bullies and who were self-medicating through the use of marijuana and other hard drugs. Whereas I truly feel if the school or parents or other community resources were to take a day or two and say, you know what, we're going to put these academics aside for a minute because we truly need to focus on what's going on here. Because if this doesn't, if this doesn't get solved, then the academics don't matter. I just think that could have helped or something along those lines. You know, you hope that children learn at home, you know, how to display respect and confidence and compassion, but that's not always the case. And then you get a mixture of these kids at school and a lot of them are looking for attention and unhealthy ways and sometimes can be very lonely experience. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It'd be lovely to see schools really complement kind of the more academic stuff with um, compassion and kindness and self-love and worth in healthy relationships. Life skills, absolutely. One of the things you mentioned about bullying was that you felt it was like addictions and that it needed to be constantly filled. Can you talk a little bit about that? For me, I had this hole inside my chest of like sadness and emptiness. To be honest, I wasn't fully conscious of what I was doing. Because once I woke up my inner superhero, I then became aware and anytime uh, an insecurity would come up for me, it would then be more of a choice. I would realize, oh, wow, I'm feeling this right now. What, what can I do with this emotion? I clearly don't, like, I know how it feels to be bullied or to be hurt. Why do I want to pass it on to anybody else? That's not very kind. That's not very nice. That's not really who I am. That's not who I was born to be. And I think 
the reason why I experienced this is to have compassion and understanding for people who are, you know, still in that situation. Even today, as I come across some people, um, but it, it's, it's like a drug, like it's like an addiction. It's like alcoholism, or if you're addicted to any drug or food for that matter, or a shopping addiction, it, it just covers and masks pain. So you're not, you're not like you're soothing the pain. There's obviously a benefit out of it, but you never fully like satisfy it. You can never fully like put it to bed. Like it's always there. So it's really hard. I probably struggled more than I think what people would have to do today because today stigma is less and there's like more people are receptive to mental health and you can reach out and ask for help. And, you know, I just think really doing that and and taking a look at yourself and asking yourself like, who is it that I want to be? And, you know, and obviously I want to feel good. And the only way to do that is for me to be honest with what I'm feeling and do some work, whatever that looks like to fill in that hole. So then I can like live a normal, well, some like normal, what is normal, but I can live a healthy and happy life, you know, waking up in the morning and just loving who I am. Because even when I was a bully to people, yeah, okay. Like it's, at, it, in my opinion, it's stuck energy um, that's coming out. It's an energetic experience in my, my experience. Um, and you're hurting somebody. And then after you know, you just regardless, I think some people are more aware of this than others, but um, I, I, it doesn't make you feel good. It, it just makes you feel worse. Absolutely. In your book, you ask the question, are you being the best you can be or the worst that happened to you? Which is mm -hmm. very powerful because it takes a lot of courage to be able to face our own inner villains, right? For sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you managed to tap into that courage? Honestly, it's still a practice for me today. I still have my days and challenges and I've realized that like everybody does. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. The biggest thing that's really made an impact for me is slowing down. When I was in survival mode, I almost was like living outside of my body. Like I wasn't very grounded. I wasn't very present. I wasn't very focused. You know, and that really impacted me in living my life and, and you know, not being, not being able to be the best that I could be. When I started to like slow down and ground myself, um, and I did that a lot through working out, like through fitness, yoga, meditation, then I started just to notice different things. And like, it's so exciting because everybody can do this. And everyone has their own experience. So when you start to notice different things, for me, I started to notice different people. And I started to like work up the courage to want to hang out with different types of people. Um, and that I could tell they were more present. Just hanging out with different people really started to shape me better because it was bringing out the best in me. And I was learning more how to power up my inner hero. And when I had a trigger, I'll call it, you know, baby Erica, inner child work was like really upset. I was able to lean on, you know, my inner hero, my adult Erica um, and to be there for her rather than always expecting someone else to be there for her or expect a substance or food or something else. That's when mm. I like started to realize that my, the relationship with me, it starts with me and that's really, 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 really important. And I need to be honest with myself and be gentle. The first time I started doing this work, it was, it was really scary to be honest, to be frank, but I haven't felt that level of fear at all since then. 
I'm more motivated now to deal with it because I realize everybody has stuff to deal with. So I'm not alone, but also, you know, that's part of my life purpose while why, why I'm here. And I'm really the common denominator. Like it's, it's my job, you know, it's my pursuit, you know, to, to be my own hero, how much love I have for myself that I, what I've gone through that I've like said that I've owned up to my mistakes, that I've made amends, I've reached out to people and I've apologized and I've done all this stuff for me regardless of their experience or their reaction. And, you know, I wake up and take care of my needs by like nourishing my body with healthy foods and healthy drinks and working out. And, you know, I've been able to like look in the past and realize that, it's brought me to where I am today and I love my life today, but I've learned a lot of this, the experiences of being in those scary situations has actually given me power today to build uh, my business. And my husband and I, we own two businesses together as well as Erica's fitness movement. And we've done some really incredible work and I like, I have to have courage to do what I've done. And so it's, it's really quite full circle because I've like been able to take what used to be um, challenges and you in the past and use them as assets today. So I just want to share that because I know how much of a heartbreak and how discouraging it can be. I get that a million percent. And some days you just got to let the time go by and just let those days go on because there's you're always going to get like life has this way of always bringing you to something great. Like there's always something that everything happens for a reason and something is going to come, something good's going to come out of that. And you know, you just got to keep taking care of you and and give grace and you're going to have days where you may not be your best self and that's okay. You know, I, I think what's important though is that you realize that and you go get some help and go get some therapy because Therapy to me has been the best thing ever when you find a good therapist and the results I've seen in it is just absolutely amazing. And I'm like super grateful that, you know, I, I wasn't like too afraid or embarrassed to, to go to that, you know, like, I mean, there, I had those feelings, but I was able to work through them and work past it and try it out. And, and then here I am. So, and I feel like because of that, I, today can say that I am being the best person that I can be today. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I, I am a big advocate for therapy as well, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I want, I want people to understand that your journey, even though right now, I mean, you are, you're doing so much, you're an empowered being, you're helping empower others. Your journey has been a challenging one and mm-hmm. you've gotten pretty low lows, right? But you were yeah. able to work through them. And I think that's something that I want people to understand that even though mm-hmm. some people out there might be feeling really, really low, that they mm-hmm. can and they have the power to be able to move forward and create a positive future. Mm-hmm. Part of your journey in you loving and accepting yourself and, and as you said, all of your behavior was that it helped you kind of better understand the behavior of others. And so you talked a little bit about your parents' behavior and how you were able to see past their pain and practice forgiveness. Can you talk a little bit about forgiveness? Yeah, forgiveness is what you do for you. And it's not always easy, but at the end of the day, it comes down 
in my opinion, in what's in your best interest. And holding on to hurts and pains and sadness and anger does not serve your health well, doesn't serve you well. So to really work towards, to better understand, you know, where are those emotions coming from, I think is really important. Um, you know, I've gone through quite the processes in life with relationships. And, you know, one thing I've learned is, like for me, I've had to set very clear boundaries. And sometimes I find it a little exhausting that I have to say the same boundary to the same person over and over again. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, I also realize it helps ground me because I realize, wow, I know I've been where that person is before. You know, I know it's frustrating, but I've learned to realize like what relationships are worth it. Like, Something I learned from a counselor a while ago was there's a difference between toxic relationships and then like imperfect relationships or something across those lines. And any toxic things I just, and people I just completely cut out of my life and I released them with love. And I can confidently say I've done that with most people. There's still some, you know, residue of things that I'm working through right now through therapy, but got a good grasp on it and um I truly wish everyone the best and I wish I wish everybody go to therapy. <laughs> yeah. I mean now that I'm married too it's like my husband and I are one. So what I do for me just indirectly impacts him. It's not just me anymore. It's I have a husband, I have two doggies and we want to start a family at some point. So I feel like it's a gift that I can give to the people that are close to me. And when I'm more happy too, I can be a better friend and I can be a better community person and family member. And when I'm better, I'm going to get more good things from other people. When I can give more love to me and I can give more love to other people, they're going to give more love to me back. And that is absolutely amazing. So it's healthy, healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I love your quote that you put in your book. You know yourself to be empowered when you accept yourself as invincible. Um, can you share some ideas on some things that the listeners could do today to start accepting themselves more? Ooh, yes, I like that. Um, definitely, I would say the first thing to do to accept yourself is to do some type of movement. So whether it's going for a walk in nature, playing on a sports league, taking an exercise class, going to try out a gym. We need to, like science proves how important it is for our mental health to move our bodies. It's going to help release endorphins and strengthen our neuron connections. So we're going to think a little bit more positive. We're going to be a little bit more happy. When we start that off, we're in a really good state to begin with because I feel like for us to accept parts of ourself, we really need to be in the best state that we can be. Um, and this has been my experience. When you start to have a shift in your energy levels, and if you can practice being aware of that, so, you know, just realizing that you're like, just try a body scan, like a body meditation, like realizing, okay, I'm a human being, I'm standing on the floor, you know, my feet are connected to the floor right now, what's connected to my feet, my legs, you know, and go all the way up the body to like the hips, the back, and just check in with yourself, ask how your breathing's doing, how's my heartbeat, all those things, and just connect with yourself. And then when things come up for you, realizing there's something there for you and practicing inner child work I can't remember who uh, coined the term but 
I feel like this is such a good practice for self-acceptance. You know, first of all, acknowledging that something has come up for you and try not to um, like suppress it and shove it down. If you do, that's okay. Um, it, it just takes practice and it can be frustrating too. But to accept um, what's coming up and be curious as to why you're thinking the way that you think why are you feeling the way that you feel? And in my opinion, you need to find a like a trusted advisor. Think of yourself as like Queen Bee or a superhero. Like all the superheroes have their superhero friends. So you need to have trusted advisors. And, and whether that's therapy, which I highly recommend, as somebody who sometimes is completely out of your like normal day-to-day because they those people have biases with you. So... Um, and find someone that you can talk to about it. And I also think like that stuff's pretty serious. And I think it's important to keep it very light and fun too. So on the flip side, a best practice would be do something really fun, like really exciting, like whether it's taking an art class or going snowboarding or, you know, going to travel if you can, even getting an overnighter somewhere or having a girl's night or going to the spa. I love the spa. Doing something really fun that like feels really good because nurturing ourself too will really help with strengthening our inner hero and, and start strengthening that that side of us that can really help handle any rough things that come up because it can be hard and it takes a lot of energy. All those best practices I think would be really good to start with. And then lastly, what I want to say is during those things, you know, you might feel guided towards something. Your inner hero voice might say something like, or you might hear a thought that's like, oh, maybe I should go do this. Or, you know, I've always wanted to try like meditation. Maybe I should go to this retreat or a silent retreat or, or maybe I should just like go travel, whatever it is. And just to listen to your instincts and your gut, I think is very helpful as well. That's wonderful. Yeah. I really like that you started with movement. Mm-hmm. the start of movement there has to be some element of present moment uh, which I think is kind of the key part in actually starting that journey is being with yourself and being present for yourself yes so thank you for Giselle, that. yes <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about systems I mean you've um, your experiences have intercepted a lot of systems can you share a little bit about that healthy male relationship that you had at the group home this person is came to my wedding last year. So we, we just have such a special bond. Um, but like a lot of the, so I lived in a girl's group home. A lot of the girls like, like this guy, I don't know if they had a crush on him or what, but he was just an exciting person. Like he was excited about life and it, it boils down to that energy. So like, I mean, he just had a lot of energy to give and I feel like that's, what's very healing. And so you can't help, but like when someone's excited, and if you want to make a change or you're looking for a different direction in life, I mean, that's a really good way to, to get it. So he was just really passionate about life and passionate about social issues. And what was interesting to me, being so young in the group home, was I was still learning life, obviously, you know, and I was realizing how many issues are in our own backyard, like homelessness being one of them and, you know, um, the sex trade being another one. And so when I was living in London, 
um, that's when I started. It was a bigger city than I've ever lived in. The high school I went to was like four times the size of the high school I grew up in or the elementary school I grew up in. And I just started to see like, wait a minute. Wow. Like there's just a lot more going on. I started to see, I started to get out of my own head and realize I'm a piece of the puzzle. I'm not the whole puzzle because then I started to realize my life, although has been challenging, it's not so bad and it could be a lot worse. There was something for me internally that because I made some bad decisions and I hurt some people and I felt really bad about that and I wanted to do some good. So his mom uh, was a school chaplain and she did tons of community events and her son was a staff mentor in this group home. And so obviously like they're a great family. They, they want the best for the community and they always had things going on. You know, this staff mentor asked, hey, you guys want to go to an event, want to go to a rally? You want, you know, he's really big on the environment, picking up plastic stuff, um, you know, working with homeless, like helping kids overseas in Haiti who needed shelter and food and medicine. And, you know, it just was kind of like, oh, wow, like, yeah, there are problems going on. I just, I felt like I wasn't alone. And then I got on board to do some of the work with them and we fundraised a little bit and. Uh, we went to some rallies together, you know, we would just educate ourselves better, like reading on topics on Google and just having different conversations that really got me engaged about life and kind of got me thinking, like got me to be more present and just got me out of my own story and just got me to start moving forward a little bit. Yeah, we just we really connected. And um, when I lived, I lived the group home for a year and went into independent living. So like really uh, grateful to have welfare because I think I was 17 and I, I was behind a little bit on my school credits. Um, and surprisingly, I wasn't like that behind because I missed a lot of school. But I went to go live with a roommate because uh, I got a job in London and she was looking for a roommate. So I went to go live with her. It was a really great roommate situation. And then uh, for me, in order for me to live on my own um, and go to school, um, I accepted welfare, I think for like a year or a year and a half. And that was like super helpful for me to like get, get my school done and stuff. And then I started a career in, in personal training. That's really the intended purpose of that kind of support, right? It's to help people yeah. at different exactly. stages of their life. And, you know, the research is showing that if you give people minimum income, that, uh, that they have good outcomes. So, so thank you for sharing that. I sure did. <laughs> thank you. For sure. Yeah. What experiences can you share about the youth justice system and um, and how that it kind of impacts uh, youth in care? I'm not a big fan of it. I just can't think of anything good to say about it. If I'm just being completely honest, um, it wasn't a good experience. I mean, here's the thing: I had two different type of experiences. One was open custody. One was secure custody. Open custody actually wasn't that bad. So let me, let me say that like open custody was kind of like a group home. So that was, I'm more of a, a fan if I had to pick of uh, that style than the secure custody because it, the secure custody was very dark. It's secure. So all the doors are locked and it's way more like an actual jail than um, the open custody, which is, I would relate it to my experiences of a group home in some aspects. I just think 
there was just not a lot of positive energy, like not a lot of care, not a lot of compassion. The experiences that I experienced was a lot of like, yeah, you really messed up. Like, why did you mess up? Like, shame on you. Like the pity, the labels, that stuff just doesn't help. I mean, if it did, we'd have a better rehabilitation rate than we do today. So I just really think we need to completely approach that differently, especially because I was a youth, like I'm a young person, like these are formative years. And I truly believe that they could have captured me in different ways that would have facilitated a little bit faster healing and recovery. I think some serious work needs to be done there. But one thing I did like is they, they fitness was a big push. So that was good. I think that's very healthy. Um, I remember having some access to counseling and like religion, which I think is good too. But other than that, um, I'm, you know, grateful. My youth justice uh, experience was short lived. I think I did about 45 days or 60 days in total, which still isn't small, but it, you know, wasn't that long either. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the worries about the youth justice system is really that the attempt is to punish and not necessarily focus on restorative justice. Um, mm-hmm. And like you mentioned, the outcomes really aren't ones of healing and getting youth on the right track. Sometimes when we kind of inter- get interested in, in punishing, then that's really kind of the, the motivation. And then somebody becomes that label for life. What we're really trying to figure out is how do we create systems that move away from the punishment model um, and using that approach to getting youth to really understand that their behavior may come from trauma and what, what the subconscious living is about, like wh- what some of the experiences have motivated the youth and how do we shift them to tap into their own superpowers and tap into their own self-love so that they can now hopefully do something different or in your case, start helping others as a way to actually um, make you feel more connected in the world. You know what, Giselle, like I just had a realization too, like being in the uh, youth system, I felt misunderstood. I think that's like the common theme for me in the youth justice system, because clearly there's issues going on. I'm angry. I'm acting out. Hurt people hurt people, right? I, I don't feel like that was established. Like, I don't feel like that was the center focus of attention was like on why are you acting the way that you are? The attention was on the crimes that you did. And that's you, the crime. You got to pay the time. And Whereas like, let's just dig deeper on why this happened and, and focus more on that because the feeling of like hopelessness like being lost in life. That's what it felt like for me. And just realizing like, man, I have so many scars and pains. Like I've seen some really dark and nasty stuff, you know, and a lot of that stuff I don't even share anymore, to be honest, um, Mm -hmm. unless it's like very specific or very purposeful. But um, I'm here in so much pain and yet there's like little to no attention on that. It's all what I've done wrong and it it just it's just not like i mean i understand i understand why the youth have walls i understand why they act there like i i get it 
right? And it's definitely not an easy task. I have a lot of respect for the staff that go into um, working in environments like that. Like definitely can't be easy, but I think there's just so much better that we can do to just create an environment. I mean, when it comes to like therapy and healing and, and talking things out, I just think there just needs to be some different approaches. And I really hope and pray that um, some differences come out to be sometime soon. Definitely. I would love to see the youth justice system be more trauma-informed and more compassionate. Yeah, that'd be Mm -hmm. great. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Can you share a little bit about your school experience? Um, I know that um, some of the stats from the CBC talk about that half of the children in government care graduate high school, which obviously are uh, rates lower than children not in care in Ontario. Can you talk a little bit about how you think that the school system might be contributing to that? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. Thinking back about my school experiences, really, it's just like, a, I don't remember much. It went by like really fast. I feel like, like when I reflect back, I I remember things, but I don't. And I think like the environment and the culture needs to be a little bit more inclusive. Again, it kind of goes back to like my opinions on personal care. Like each school has a different audience of children coming in, depending on the geographical location. And I just think that there should be some like programs or structure or some guidelines on educating the school, like who is here, like what type of kids are here and what are some of the issues. And I, I think involving the, the children in that and like educating them about that is important because they're going to see, they're seeing it anyways. They're seeing that some kids are, you know, coming from poor backgrounds or they're not able to eat breakfast or they don't have like fancy clothes or, or they ha- they're not treated well at home having some more compassionate and care programs with each community. Because I know so many people want to help. So many people want to make a difference. So I feel like if we put the ask out there, the ask would be received. And I just think sometimes in the school system, there's so much fear. They're so afraid of things. And yeah, I get that. But I'm more afraid of the things going the same way that they are. Like, I'm sure there's always a solution. There's always a way. So I just think that the school system needs to be a little bit more personalized with their audiences and to roll out some uh, programs that are coming from their own community, I think, I I think would be helpful. I've just seen Mm -hmm. some of that work before um, with the group home experience. And I think there's something there that would be worth, um, like approaching or just seeing how it would roll out. I think those are some great points. I I really do. And I am particularly grateful for the comment that there's so many people who actually want to help because it's true. There's always fears in terms of what kind of help that you can provide and there's limits around because of that fear. And I think if we gave people more opportunity to really contribute and help others, this world could look very different. Me too. (laughs) I'd like to hear a little bit more about your experiences in the child welfare system, both from the perspective of a youth who has gone through it, but also now that you're in a leadership position, because I know that you are a member of a board in an Ontario Children's Aid Society. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that the the current child welfare system exists in the empowerment of youth? No, 
it's, uh, I've had some interesting experiences. And like one thing I know is that um, a lot of people want to help, which is great. But there's a lot of egos, a lot of egos. And there's a lot of prestige in the way. I think there just needs to be more of a collective approach to acquiring information. Maybe some more pilot programs ran just to try things. You know, it might be a good time too because, you know, we're dealing with some financial cutbacks. So it might be a good time to try some of these things. It would be interesting to do a poll with children today who are in uh, CAS across Ontario. Like I'd be really curious to, to hear what they think with that answer. I know I've seen some stuff, but I know how I felt back then, but that's almost 15 years ago. I know it's changed somewhat, but it would be interesting to get some stats today. I, I do know that the more opinions and surveys I think would be good just to get a gauge at where we're at and, and try some, some new things to see what works for today. Definitely. Um, so you mentioned the role of ego. Mm-hmm. What I have found in my experiences has been that the ego really rises when their sponsoring thought is fear. That the ego comes out out of a need to protect. Mm-hmm. So what role do you think fear plays in how child protection is practiced in North America? I remember, you know, sitting around a board table asking, what are we all afraid of here? I'm not really getting a genuine answer, but you can cut the fear with a knife. It's really thick. I'm the youngest on the board by far. So my experience is really unique in that aspect too. I just think that people are afraid of not knowing enough or not having the answer that it's like overcompensating. Yeah, it's, it's really heavy. And I just think it's a protection of feeling like they don't know enough. You know, we can't go try this or go do that because, you know, this happened before. So again, it's more fear. And I think if, if, if we really sat down and, you know, took a fine tooth comb through what we're asking to do, I think we would be able to like put in the, the safety features good protection things going on to learn from it or at least like create try to create something new because clearly what we're doing isn't working in my opinion you know maybe uh, a workshop for everybody on compassion (laughs) you can lead it Giselle you know and I think that would be good and have a little bit more experiences for for everybody to practice that especially if they're, if they're doing that in their own lives, it's going to be a little bit easier for them to do it professionally. And, you know, team building activities might, might be helpful too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. One of the interesting things that I find within the child welfare system is the illusion of control. It is about really not knowing. We're not fortune tellers, so we don't really know what the Mm outcome is going to be in the long term. And the decisions are so heavy in the sense that it's somebody's life, it's somebody's family. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a great deal at risk. Mm -hmm. What happens when something goes wrong in a child protection case is that the public wants somebody to blame because it is 
awful. It is awful when something happens to a child. Mm -hmm. um, and then what happens is that individuals take on the whole responsibility or organizations take on the responsibility. And I think the challenge is sometimes there isn't anything you could have done. Mm -hmm. Therefore, child welfare becomes in more and more protectionistic in its attempts to try to control as much as possible the potential risks for youth. The flip side of that, from what I've heard from youth, is that they are prevented from fully living lives because fully living lives require some level of risk. You are a, a very big advocate for youth, and we're grateful for that. I wanted to know what the role of voices of youth in ensuring a more compassionate child welfare system, uh, how that could occur. I'm very grateful for my in-care experience. I dedicated the book to being in the group home because I had such a positive experience and I know I wouldn't be who I am today living the life that I lead today. So I'm very, very grateful. I just think if there's more education to not judge, um, especially like I'm speaking for like the children in care, um, to not judge them, judge their families. And obviously there's some issues going on and what can we do to make the world a better place? I definitely think for staff to not have like the pity, it just isn't helpful. And I think if when kids go into care, like, listen, like you've clearly had a rough go. I'm so sorry for that. You know what? It sucks. It's rough. I like I do, or I don't know from personal experience, like depending who you are, you know, at the end of the day, this is your life. Like whatever your spiels, I think if just people approach them in a very honest way, like I'll introduce you to some people who have been in your shoes before and they've made great lives out of their situation. And, you know, and there's also the other side who, ha who haven't, you're in the power seat. It's not always going to be easy, but it, it can be good just because you're born into something doesn't mean that's going to be your destiny. And there's been a lot of really great heroic stories of people who could like celebrities, even and athletes that have completely turned their life around. So, but it's awkward. I understand. It's awkward to know how to feel because you don't know what someone's going through. The last thing you want to do is to offend them. And, you know, I think people just need to be more human, have more connection, be honest, speak the truth, even if it's hard and have some uh, good resources in place. Yeah, absolutely. And you made so many great points. Um, I think that definitely the starting from a place of not pitying youth is a really important one. Yeah. And treating them instead as if they're resilient survivors or... I think, as you would put it, latent superheroes. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I really do think that, you know, you mentioned kind of putting the kids in the driver's seat. And I know that the new legislation aims to do that in terms of giving them greater voice and participation. But people still struggle, workers still struggle, because, again, there's that belief that somehow we must know better. Um, you also talked about kind of the depersonalization of the, the child welfare work. And I think part of it comes from, in systems, generally, we've taught people that, you know, we should be professional and then that means we have to kind of have emotional distance so that we can be unbiased. And I think that we're lying to ourselves. We don't leave our emotions at home. We bring them with us. The more that mm -hmm. we connect to the children, they connect to the family and see them as other human beings just like us, mm -hmm. I think the better care we can provide them. So thank you 100%, for that. 100%. 100%. I see you as a leader, obviously. So I wanted to, uh, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about youth leadership and how that might kind of help child welfare align in the right track. Everyone's favorite topic is themselves. So, 
you know, getting, <laughs> <laughs> let's be honest here. So getting the youth involved to share their stories, they're so fired up because they feel so, they just feel so like underneath the curve where they feel they've been set back, the underdog. So for them to like do something meaningful that has purpose and that can connect them with other people, especially for a common purpose and to realize they have a similar background, well, that's pretty cool. And that's something that we did with the recovery road is we got a bunch of youth together to do some positive stuff. We handed out random acts of kindness at a Tim Hortons talking about mental health and wanted to break the stigma and kept it really simple. And Tim Hortons sponsored our local community and every youth who participated has been a former youth in care or was current. I feel like I haven't really heard no anytime I've asked to do a, a youth led group and all the programs that I've ran. I always in the program I have, I've implemented that I have a, a piece where I get the youth involved and they, they do, they want to share their voice. They want to be the center of attention um, because they, they want to feel important. They want to feel special. And I really think that's what comes down to the suffering. And, you know, like when these kids aren't getting that from their parents and then they go into the system and it can be uh, crazy. I know 100% they need more positive situations where they can have some positive influence just to get them to even think a little bit differently or plant that seed for the future. The more youth-led, I think is great. And let's face it, they have lots of energy. So there's just such a need of wanting to belong and to connect that I just, I think it's, I support youth-led initiatives all the way. I think it's amazing. Absolutely. And you mentioned something that I've heard youth say to me before, which is they're looking for youth role models. They're looking for other people like them that have made it. And I don't yes. think we do enough of that to connect no. them to people like such as yourself who have been able to overcome adversity and are now helping others. And I think if we had more of those kinds of role models that youth could tap into, I think that we would definitely have better outcomes. Yeah, hundred percent. And there's so many people out there. I even thought about writing like a sequel and I don't mind sharing this, having like a bunch of youth super stories, like make it one book. The book is not about me. It's about like 50 youth superheroes who like all have experiences from being in care and like how that they're living a decent life today. Like I don't need someone who's living a perfect life. They don't need to be a celebrity, but they're like overall, you know, they've kind of figured it out. Like life's pretty good. I think we just need a lot more of those and they're, they're out there. I've been blessed to come in contact with many in my, like where I live, like Ontario, but there's so many out there. I think you should definitely write it. We need that book and youth need that book. Maybe you can co-author it because it's such a big project to take on. I would be happy to help in any way. You need that book because youth need to see how they could tap into their own superpower by seeing it in other youth. Youth have told me this. This is for them. Aw, so cool. What's next for you? What are you up to? What do you want to share with the audience in terms of what you're working on? Now my energy of being like a solo entrepreneur has been like combined with my husband. So we both own businesses and we work together in each other's business. And we're really focused on building our mini empire. We're just focused on creating a lot of love and empowerment in our lives. And we just want to provide good goods and services for our communities. So my husband owns a grocery store and I own a commercial cleaning company. Our mission is all about creating positive, clean environments. And then I also run my personal training practice. So we're pretty busy. 
And then we want to start our own family. So I'm really excited because I know I'm going to go through even more healing um, when I when I become a mom. So I'm really, really excited to, to start that journey, maybe towards the end of this year or next year. There's really no rush. We're just excited about that. And um, I want to keep doing some work with our communities, with mental health, with youth. I have a, a special place. I always have room in my heart. Right now, I'm working with a board that takes up most of that time. There's definitely going to be some passion projects that come up on the horizon. So just stay tuned for those. <laughs> oh, for sure. We need that book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for all your wisdom in helping people, especially youth, become their best selves. Please go out and get Erica's book, uh, My Own Superhero, Awakening Your Own Superhero by Igniting Your Natural Born Superpowers, available on Amazon. Also check out Recovery Road with Erica on Rogers TV. We hope that you can join us again for another podcast. Thank you.